0: Last week, we began what we called the body of the letter 2 Thessalonians. The first chapter was blessing, it was prayer for the Thessalonians, reminder of some of the things God was going to do. And we started chapter 2 with the words, now concerning, and he introduced the subject of eschatology, which is the study of last things. Eschatos means last in Greek, ology is the study of. You all know that one. So when you hear the word eschatology, you got to think end of the world. All right. And that's what Paul's and Silas and Timothy are talking about. And they assured us that the end had not yet come. And last week was a warning against hysteria. He was warning them not to be quickly shaken in mind or shaken out of your mind. That could even be translated. And He's going to explain, starting today, how we can know for sure that the day of the Lord, those final seven years, had not begun yet. And that major sign that Paul gives, it's the same major sign that Jesus gives and Daniel gives in the book of Revelation, is the Antichrist. We're talking about the Antichrist today. And there is so much wild speculation surrounding this topic. There are people that don't even believe the Bible, that for some reason are very interested in the Antichrist, and there are movies that are made and books that are written, and we're not going to get into any kind of speculation today. We're not even going to get into the details too much today. We're going to give a, a biblical overview of the broad strokes of what the Bible teaches about the Antichrist. So if you are well-versed in these things, this will probably be very basic for you. Hopefully, it'll be a good reminder for you. But if you feel like you don't know your Bible super well, maybe you're very unfamiliar with the, the future prophecies and things, this will be really good to help you get the big blocks, as we've been saying, in place. And this is not exactly what you'd call a pleasant topic. I was telling the guys before we started. Sometimes we do these topics, and they're just not fun to study because I have to spend a week... Looking at the way that the the people of God and the world is going to be deceived and ravaged at the end of time before Jesus comes back. That's not a pleasant thing. But it's an important one. And it's very flippant and easy to say, why do we even bother talking about those prophecies? We just need to worry about the people's issues right now. Well, I think, first of all, this will help us address issues that we're facing right now. Secondly, it's in the Bible, so we're going to talk about it. And number three... The Bible has revealed some of the things that are going to happen. And while we can't know all the details, so many people have been saved by seeing that what God said beforehand came true later. So it's good for us to know these things. John put it this way in 1 John 2, verse 18. He says, Children, it is the last hour. You've heard of the last days. John says it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming... So now, many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So, John would say this matters because not only are we looking for the capital A antichrist to come, the church has constantly, for all of its history, been facing off against the little a antichrists. And that's something we need to be warned about and prepared for. So, the application might be thin today to you. A lot of good meat and potatoes today, a lot of scripture. I encourage you to be writing some of these down and go look them up later. But this is also a very important lesson, not just to understand, but I think it will apply to our lives as well. So let's go ahead and read this whole thing. It's just three verses, and we'll read it several times today, but let's start right now. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? All right. So he begins verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way, which is, of course, connected to what came before. And... Those verses all amount to, don't panic easily. If you're a Christian, you believe the Lord and you read your Bible, you should not be easily panicked by information concerning the end of the world. We talked about this last time, so I won't get into it with any detail here, but the Thessalonians believed that the day of the Lord, that final seven-year countdown, had begun, what we call the tribulation. Perhaps there had been someone coming into the church Bringing a letter that was supposedly from an apostle or having a vision or something like that to the effect that this has begun. The the day of the Lord has come, which is a day of darkness and wrath, and they were panicked. And Paul said, no, 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 don't be easily shaken by that. And I'll remind you again, as we talked about at length last week, the study of the end should never produce hysteria. That is not the fruit of sound doctrine, nor should it produce what seems to be the other one, rage. There are some people that get hysterical and afraid, and there are some people, they just get angry when they're talking about the end times. Go, well, don't go, but if you were to go on YouTube or Facebook or wherever and find some of these people, they're all so angry. I don't understand. They're, they're angry at the church. They're angry at the world. They're angry at this political party. They're angry at this doctrinal persuasion or this church. And The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And there are differences of opinion on these things among godly, going-to-heaven people. This is important for us to know that this is what you call a family discussion. You know, there's certain things that in your family you're going to talk about, you're going to discuss, you might even disagree. But when you're out there among people, you're a family. You're presenting a united front. It's, It's that kind of thing. This is not determining who's going to heaven and who's not. This is us trying our best to Understand what some very obviously confusing, in many cases, prophecies say. And I think we all should be able to agree that panic and sensationalism and carnal anger, they have no place in God's house. I think we ought to at least be able to come around that and not spend time saying, yeah, and that's what those people do. That's, that's what happens. We, we preach against hysteria and anger, and then we say, don't be so angry and crazy like those people over there. And you're immediately doing the thing you just said you shouldn't do. Now, Paul is about to give some doctrinal proofs here. But just a reminder of what we said last week. Start with this. Don't be deceived. Don't be easily shaken. Don't be the one that's chasing trends or, oh, another new book came out. It's going to change everything. Uh, That's not a good thing to say, is it? New books that change everything never really end very well, do they? So we can start with this. Do not be deceived in any way. And then the next phrase in verse 3, For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. So that phrase, for that day will not come, is actually not there in Greek. Paul just goes straight into it. It's what your English teacher called a sentence fragment, and it's in the Bible. So I guess they're, they're endorsed by the Most High God. But you would read this, Let no one deceive you in any way. For unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, it's obviously implied. But in English, to make it flow better, that day will not come. The day of the Lord cannot have come unless these things here. So if you have maybe a New King James or something, you might see that phrase in italics. That's why. The rebellion. He says, don't don't be deceived that the day of the Lord. Well, how can you know? He says, because the rebellion hasn't come first. That's the first thing he's going to say, and we'll spend most of our time on the second one, but let's talk about this first thing. That word, rebellion, is the Greek word apostasia. This is, you can hear it, where we get the word apostasy from. To apostatize is to walk away from the Lord, to abandon your faith. And it comes from a Greek word meaning to withdraw, or to remove, or to fall away, and what that means is very important because Paul says the end is not going to come unless this happens first. So let's, let's look at what the, the Bible has to say. In the New Testament, this word is only used one other place. And that's in Acts chapter 21, verse 21, when Paul comes back to Jerusalem. You remember the story. And James comes up to him and says, Paul, great to have you back. Listen, a lot of the Jewish Christians are really mad at you. Because they've been told that you're going around telling all these Jewish Christians that they should abandon or forsake Moses, and that's the word apostasia used there. That abandonment of Moses, the forsaking of Moses. And that's the story where James tells him, so why don't you go in and pay for these guys' Nazarite vow to kind of clear the air. And it didn't work because Paul was arrested and the story went on from there. But that's where that word was used. So this gives us an idea of what it means, to forsake or abandon Moses. He's saying that rebellion, that forsaking. There's another form uh, in another Another gender, it's called the way that the words are used. Spanish has feminine and masculine, Greek is the same way. Apostasion, you can hear how they're exactly the same. Apostasia, apostasion. In that form, it's used to describe divorce. Several times in the New Testament, I'll use this word to, you can understand it, the forsaking, the drawing away, the being pulled away. When Jesus talks about divorce, that's the word that he uses. And the Old Testament, which of course is written in Hebrew, but the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew. So they use the word apostasia, I believe it's four times, there may be more, but in, in Joshua where he talks about a sin that we had committed in rebellion. Second Chronicles has a couple places talking about a wicked king and his rebellion. Jeremiah 2.19 is accusing the people of apostasy or rebellion. So... You get the idea. It's used, this same Greek word was used in the book of the Maccabees, which is of course not scripture, but it still helps us know how the word was used, you understand? To describe their political rebellion against Rome was the word apostasia. So that gives you a broad sense of what it means, and what this is telling us This is the first way of understanding. There is a second way to understand this word that I'll get to in a minute, but this first one is is true regardless of how you understand this verse. There will be widespread apostasy before the day of the Lord. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. You know this one. In the last days, perilous times will come. Jude 17 and 19 says in the same way. In the last days. I'm going to read another one. 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5. It says understand this in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self lovers of money proud arrogant abusive disobedient to their parents ungrateful unholy heartless unappeasable slanderous without self control brutal not loving good treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. So there's three passages, I just read the longer one, that describe in the last days the church is not gonna look so good. And this is talking about the church, right? Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. But they're brutal and proud and arrogant and abusive and all those things. Bible talks a lot that in the last days, the church is going to have some serious moral and spiritual problems. The apostasy, the falling away, it's sometimes translated. And there's a debate here over whether this is pre-rapture or post-rapture. There's some that say that's going to describe what happens after the rapture and all the, the good Christians are gone. I don't think that's the best way to understand it. I think this is This is pre. This is before the day of the Lord begins. Before all this happens, the church is going to have a very serious crisis of faith. Let me give you one bit of speculation. I've told you that we should be careful about this, so I'm not standing on this. Here's an idea. A lot of people will say, now listen, if the rapture is going to be millions of Christians disappearing off the face of the earth, why does the Bible never talk about the fallout from that? You ever wondered that? The left behind books and movies, of course, portray it that way, that planes are falling out of the sky and people are disappearing. And that, that is one way of viewing it. But let me present an alternative way to understand this. That if there is a massive apostasy in the church before the day of the Lord happens, and the church is just ravaged by this moral and spiritual rebellion against the Lord, to the point where the church and the faithful remnant has dwindled that when the rapture happens it might even almost go unnoticed by the rest of the world that the churches seem to be functioning like they always have look at all the christians doing their thing meanwhile the lord takes his people up to heaven and that might be one reason why the the bible doesn't describe that because there won't be much fallout because the church itself has been devastated spiritually that's not a bible verse that's an idea and it's fun to talk about ideas and kick them back and forth. Some of you all probably love that. Some of you all probably think I'm crazy. That's okay. But it is something to think about. And it certainly makes a lot of sense to me that if there's going to be a rebellion in the church before the end, that the rapture itself, which would be the Lord kind of identifying who is his, makes some sense to me. But, you know, think it through. Pray about it. See what you think. But it should go without saying. Here's our first point of application. You should be guarded against apostasy as a Christian. Every generation in the church, regardless of whether they are about to experience the tribulation or not, and so far none of them have, has to guard against apostasy. There is always a threat of a wave sweeping through the church wanting to draw many people away. There's always the temptation of abandoning the gospel or chasing after these fleshly passions and finding ways to elevate them in the church. Are we not seeing those same things today? That people have their passions and the things they believe in? And it always baffles me that somebody will come to some conclusions that are so radically opposed to the Bible and to what Jesus teaches, and rather than leave the church, they want to change the church. They want to change the doctrine. They want to change the text of Scripture. They want to change the liturgy or whatever it is, in order to reflect their own beliefs. I've never quite understood that. It's like if you disagree... What are you still doing here? But I think there's some spiritual warfare aspects to that. That the enemy is like, we're going to stick around and we're going to ruin this thing. And there have been mighty denominations that have been started by godly men and begun in revival that are just husks and shells of what they were now. I think, of course, the clearest example of this is the importation of the, of the gay agenda and the transgender thing. Like That is so far away from what the Bible teaches. Like That's not even a debate the Bible tells us this is wrong and that this is not how we live. But there are people who have devoted their whole lives to making the church okay with that. And it, it's like, why, what are you still doing here? Is it, I mean, I'm not even being mean. I'm just like, why are, you, why are you here? Well, we've got to change this. We've got to make it okay. And I think that's an example of the kind of thing. And it can be any issue that sweeps through the church. Apostasy. You've got to be guarded against that, Christian. There's always going to be an opportunity to abandon sound doctrine and to chase after a doctrine because it's what you kind of want to believe anyway rather than it's what your pastor has taught you or what the Word says. Now, this is not to say, by the way, that the church is not marching on, because it is. We've got to remind ourselves about that sometime, don't we? Not only is there revival happening in places like India and Africa and South America, not only are there more Christians in China than ever before, but the United States has some of the biggest churches the world has ever seen. That's not a bad thing. That is a good thing. And and there's all kinds of issues, but we can still look at what's good and say, hey, the Lord still has a foothold in this place. You know, this is not a political statement, but let me just say, the politicians can't ignore Christians in this country. You can't buy that. And there are many that try (laughs) and kind of wish they could. But that's, that's a special thing that we have. So the church is marching on. We've not been defeated. Jesus said we're never going to be defeated. One reason among many why I believe that the rapture will happen first, because he said our church will never be defeated. But you've got to watch out because it's always one generation away. You know, the generation that is rising now, mine and the ones coming after, church is losing them. And there's a million reasons why, and I could stand up here and blame a bunch of people. The fact is, that's always the temptation. And we need the Lord to send his Holy Spirit to revive us and revive our kids. The spiritual disciplines, you guys, prayer, the word, fellowship with one another, worship, discipline tithing, evangelism, these things, you can't abandon those things and expect to stand against the the wave of apostasy that comes through the church. The sound doctrine of the teaching of the Word of God. There's always faithful people holding on to that doctrine. And there may come the day, I hope it doesn't, where that, that repository of sound doctrine will no longer be in the West. Maybe it'll be in South Korea or something like that. It used to be Egypt. That was the center of Christianity for years, centuries. And then it was Rome, and then it was England, and the United States, and we're spreading it around the world like we're supposed to, so that if our culture gets a wave of apostasy, the Lord still has his people holding on to sound doctrine somewhere else. But we've got to hold on to those things. Some people change their doctrine like they change their shoes, man. It's crazy. Discipleship, always making new disciples, leading new people to Jesus. That's indispensable. Don't look to the world for guidance. Well, most people seem to believe this. Yeah, most people believed all kinds of weird things years ago. Christians used to be called atheists by the Romans. You only believe in one God? You're a bunch of atheists? No, we believe in it. Well, you don't believe in all the gods, you just believe in you're one. You think you're so special. That's not the new, you guys. Stick with Jesus. Shrink your world, Christian. Don't be so worried about what they're saying out there. Live here. Be comfortable being an outcast and a minority. We have to be able to do that. If if we're going to get so agitated because we're not popular and nobody's making movies about us anymore, it's like, well, Jesus said that's the way it was going to go, man. The apostasy. One way or another, the Bible talks about there will be a last day's apostasy. I'm going to throw out one interesting and very potentially exciting idea for verse 3 here. Unless the rebellion comes first. The verb form of the word apostasia is aphistemi. Most of the time in the New Testament, that word is translated departure. So there are some, and this is a minority view even among pre-trib people, but let me just put this out there. There are some who believe that by saying rebellion here, he's not talking about spiritual removal, that he's explicitly referring to the physical removal of the church. This, I will say, is, I don't think it's the best option, but it is a legitimate option, which is rather exciting for you and for me, because it is quite possible that in verse 3 we have the explicit statement of, you could translate it maybe, unless the removal comes first. The removal of the church hasn't happened yet, so what what are you worried about the day of the Lord for? That is possible. I I don't think you can say it for sure, but I will say that believing in the rapture before the tribulation allows me to accommodate that possibility and I don't have to sit up saying, that, that word could mean this, and I could be wrong. So something to, to cook your noodle later and think about. What kind of removal is this? I think the most likely option is that this is a spiritual falling away because it corroborates what the rest of the Bible says. But it is certainly possible that this is a physical removal of the church, the gathering together that he described in verse 1. So probably have a lot of fun with that in the home fellowships this week, I would imagine. Well, let's move on now. That's the rebellion. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, or the son of perdition is the old way to put it, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So the first marker of the day of the Lord is the rebellion. The second that Paul gives, and this is the most common sign of the day of the Lord, is the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. Paul refers here to the Antichrist. And this is one title among many for this man of lawlessness. We get the name Antichrist from the book of 1 John. He's the one that coins that term. You can see Paul here calls him the man of lawlessness. He's referred to as a beast in most of the prophetic passages, the false shepherd, all kinds of names for the Antichrist. Let me sum up what I mean when I say this. The Bible prophesies a world ruler, empowered by Satan, who will consolidate all power unto himself, demand worship of himself, and bring history to the brink and rain destruction on all of God's people. That's the Antichrist. And it's it's going to be difficult even today, just giving the broad strokes, because a lot of these things come from some pretty wild prophetic passages, but... This is one of those big blocks that the Bible is very clear about. We talked about the big block of the tribulation and the the second coming and the rapture and the millennium. The other big block that we know for sure is there will be an Antichrist. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 13. This is, I I would say, maybe the most comprehensive passage that describes the Antichrist here. So you, you have to read it. You can't just hear me read it. You've got to read this. It's pretty wild. And then I'll give a lot of Scripture later on, and we'll lay down some of these broad strokes, but this is who we're talking about. Revelation 13, we're going to do the first nine verses, okay? And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems, or crowns, on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon, that is Satan, gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Now you might want to keep going after reading some of that, but we're going to pause right there. So John has a vision of a beast. I think a better translation, although beast still sounds cool, is monster. I saw a monster rising up out of the sea. The sea is a picture of chaos in the Bible. It's a picture of uncreation, rebellion against God. It's also a picture of the nations of the world. The beast is the Antichrist. That's a pretty understood and established symbol in the Bible. The Bible usually uses monsters as symbols of world empires. That the leopard was a symbol of Greece, a leopard with four heads, and there was a bear with ribs in its mouth, and one of its sides raised up, and that was Medo-Persia. The Bible uses these beasts, these monsters, to describe these empires. So it seems here we have another one coming up, but he seems to be a person at the head of this empire. His power comes from the dragon, who is Satan, worshipped by the world, blasphemes for 42 months, which is three and a half years. This man is the climax of human sin and human wickedness. And the arrival of this figure is the defining mark of the day of the Lord. So I said it kind of as a joke last week, but I will be serious for a moment and say this. If we see the Antichrist rise up and commit the abomination of desolation in the temple, we will know, okay, pre-trib was wrong. Time to saddle up. And that is the only sign that we're given, (laughs) is the abomination of desolation, which I'll describe what that is in a minute. Now, it's tough to decipher the symbolism, but you kind of got the picture there. Big, terrifying, world-dominating Worshipped by everybody, beast. And I'm going to go through four things that the Bible teaches us about him. So if you're taking notes, I encourage you to write them down. And it might be easier to write them down and just listen so that you can make sure you get the broad strokes here. What do we know about this guy? This antichrist, this beast that rises up out of the sea, empowered by Satan. The first thing to know, this man is a world ruler, with a vast empire. This is the first thing. He's a world ruler with a vast empire. Now that that monster, that beast with the seven heads and 10 horns. I I heard somebody recently describe the book of Revelation as it's like a fever dream. It's it's hallucinatory and maybe maybe John was on DMT or some kind of drug when he wrote this. And I just slapped my my face against my palm and groaned because it's like No. It's not just random things. The Bible doesn't do random. It's calling back to visions that Daniel had back in the book of Daniel. Daniel had a vision, and I'm not going to read this part, of a a mighty beast like this one. He said it was the most terrifying thing he'd ever seen. That was a mighty empire with ten horns. So when we see another beast later with ten horns, that should call us back to Daniel. Daniel 7, the angel explained what those ten horns mean. Daniel is nice because very often it tells us what it means. (laughs) Sometimes they just leave you hanging and you have to wonder. But this is what those ten horns on that monster mean. As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. So this is an empire we're talking about here. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise. So the ten horns or ten what? Kings. It says it right there. And after another shall arise. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. So another king who will put down three of those ten. He shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So that's a year, two years, and half a year. Three and a half years. 42 months. You can see these are connected to one another. So, according to that passage, there will be a terrifying kingdom that will devour the whole world with 10 kings. So there's some kind of oligarchy, it seems, going on here. But, once it is established, another king will rise up and force out the other three. And that is the Antichrist. So, are you tracking with me so far? There's a world empire with 10 kings. Three of them are going to be torn down, and there's going to be another guy that rises up and takes preeminence over all of them. Revelation 6, verse 2, describes it this way. The first thing that John saw about the tribulation was this. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. Oh, it's Jesus. No, 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 (laughs) no. And he came out conquering and to conquer. First horseman of the apocalypse, the apocalypse is the Greek word for revelation, is the Antichrist. So this is, lines up with what Jesus said and what Daniel says and what Paul says here in 2 Thessalonians. The first marker, definitive marker of the day of the Lord is the Antichrist. He's a conqueror. And you, of course, know the second, third, and fourth horses are famine and disease and death. Daniel talked about this empire devouring and trampling down the whole world. So it's not going to be a peaceful rise to power for this Antichrist. It's going to be domination of the whole world. And it's going to be followed by famine and disease and death. and Other signs, of course, that are given. We do know that this guy is going to make a covenant with Israel for seven years. This is Daniel chapter 9. So, this kingdom is rising to power. It, it I kind of get the, the picture of this almost like a Napoleon figure. Or, or you know, somebody who's leading the the armies, and then comes back to take leadership over the whole thing. He's a conqueror that conquers the whole world. They set up this nice structure with ten kings. This guy shows up and says, no, it's going to be me. There's rebellion by other three. He puts them down, and now he's on top. Seems very plausible, doesn't it? Once you get through all this symbolism, it's like, okay, yeah, I could see that happening. He'll make a covenant with Israel for seven years. Maybe that's going to be how he manages to rise to the top. He says, let me put an end to all this destruction, all this trampling of the world, especially for Israel. It says in Revelation 17, 12, that those ten kings are going to give him their authority. It's his empire. It's the important thing to know. There's going to be some kind of power struggle, but it's his empire. Make no mistake. It says he'll change the times and the law. There's a lot of speculation about what that means. But... The point is, he's in charge. Maybe they're going to change the calendar. It's going to start with me now. A lot of dictators have done that, right? We're going to start history over with me. The Bible talks of him forcing a mark on everybody in order to buy and to sell, Revelation 13. And don't let anybody tell you that they know what the mark of the beast is. They don't. And, and, you know, there's been a lot of Again, ideas and speculation that it could be something digital because we live in a digital age and we can understand somebody being compelled to have some kind of digital chip or whatever it is in order to buy and sell. Bible does not say that there will be a digital thing. It says there will be a mark on the forehead and on the hand. And it is also tied to the worship of the Antichrist. So please don't ever be afraid you're going to accidentally take the mark of the beast. It baffles me that that's you know, you, you accidentally took the mark of the beast. No, 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 no. It's either take the mark and worship the image or get your head chopped off. And his number is 666. And if we don't know what the mark of the beast is, we really don't know what the number of the beast is. People want to take, like, people's names and draw the numbers out of their names. And Aha, see? Barney the dinosaur is secretly the Antichrist. We don't know. I think when the day comes, it'll be very obvious that the, the, those who believe in Christ during that time, they'll be like, that's what 666 is. So here's, let, let's, let's wrap all this up. I gave a lot of details, but let's wrap this up plainly. There will be an empire that rises. With ten kings, out of that empire will stand out one man who's going to lead the way and forge a kind of peace around the world with Israel, probably by force. Not United Nations, let's come together and sign a thing like Don't mess with them, we're going to blow you up. That kind of piece. At some point, that leader among these kings will consolidate his power by crushing three of the ten, and he will impose his will upon all people under pain of death. This is the first thing. There is a world leader coming who will rule by violence and by force. We call him the Antichrist. The second thing is that he will demand false worship of himself and no one else. So we're going beyond military dictator here. To false worship. Daniel chapter 11, verses 36 and 37 say, The king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. Can you see that 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is referring to that passage? He says, that man of lawlessness who exalts himself above every god. That's a reference back to Daniel chapter 11. You've got to know your whole Bible. The king will have no regard for any god except himself. That passage actually continues and says, except maybe the god of fortresses. I'm not going to say, he said, let's worship the god of fortresses. He's like, the only god I believe in is power. The only god I believe in is weapons. We read in Revelation 13, the world's going to marvel and worship him and worship Satan for his power. But he's going to exalt himself also as a god and compel worship of himself. And we say, that's crazy. People today would never go for that. Did you know? I mean, y'all know this, but I'm going to remind you. 75 years ago, Japan still believed that their emperor was a god. There are people living today who grew up being taught that their king was a god. There are people living in North Korea now who believe that their dictator, their king, whatever they call him, is a god. So don't be too sure here. People throughout history have worshipped their kings and their rulers. It would not take much, I don't think, to tip us over that edge. Especially people who don't believe in anything and how atheism has swept the globe and people are so desperate to believe in anything. Jesus puts it this way, Matthew 24, 15 through 16. He says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. This is what Paul is talking about here. When he says, when he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God and takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, and chapter 9, verse 27. This verse in Thessalonians, Jesus and Matthew 24. Put those together, what this amounts to. You know what an abomination is? Something that is just reprehensible to God. And of desolation, that's going to bring death and destruction upon the whole world. This is kind of the last straw you could say. Where this guy is going to march into God's temple and it seems to me that we can assume that at some point that temple will be rebuilt. Other people interpret it symbolically. I don't, so I'm not going to worry about it. But he's going to set up in the temple, and I would imagine in the Holy of Holies, he's going to set up an image of himself and command everybody to worship him. And if you don't worship him, you're going to be beheaded. You're going to be killed. That's why Jesus said, when you see that, if you're living in Jerusalem, you better get out. Because they're coming for you. Like they came for you during the Holocaust. Like they came for you when Rome came and when Babylon came. The abomination of desolation. This was prefigured by a king named Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a Greek ruler. Was ruling over the, the land of Judea at the time. And he was fed up with these Jews not submitting to him. So he came into the temple. He set up an image of Zeus. Not in the holy place but in the uh, the inner court, where the, the court of the men as it was called. And he offered a pig on the bronze altar, which we know was a big no-no in the temple. Pigs were very unclean. And he set up uh, an image of Zeus. And then, of course, the, the Jews got so mad they staged a rebellion and got him out of there. But even later, in A.D. 40, Emperor Gaius Caligula of Rome began to take his own press clipping seriously. And they worshipped the emperor, but he began to say, you know what? I am a god. And he began to mandate worship of himself. And he even sent his generals to take images of himself to establish them in the temple in Jerusalem. And there's a whole story you can read. The general knew this was a bad idea and was trying his best to avoid this. And the emperor actually died before it could be done. But this, those were prefigurings of what was going to happen. Daniel, the book of Daniel says this will happen halfway through those seven years. So this guy is conquering the world consolidating his power, and then after a while, after three and a half years, he says, and you know what? You can worship me too. I've had it with you Jews. I've had it with you Christians. Everyone's going to bow down and worship me like Nebuchadnezzar, or it's into the fiery furnace with you. That's the second thing. So plain English, world conqueror and ruler, dazzles everybody with his charm, with the things that he does, Says he'll be a great speaker, and people will marvel at him. He'll be compelled by Satan to set up an image of himself in Jerusalem, demand worship as God under pain of death. And we call that the abomination of desolation. The Antichrist is not just a false king. He's a false god. That's number two. So getting a general idea of who the Antichrist is. And those are the big strokes right there. World ruler who also demands worship and will persecute anybody that refuses to worship him. Now here's the big question that we ask. All right, who is it? who is it? The short version is you don't know and neither do I. And the church has wasted a lot of time trying to figure it out. On that day, I think it'll be very clear. Very clear. The That's the thing that we need to remember. It's not going to be like a secret antichrist where you've got to break down codes and like these weird number symbols in the Bible to figure it out. It says he's going to conquer the whole world and everyone's going to marvel at him. But we do need to know that the spirit of Antichrist is already at work. 1 John chapter 4, verses 2-3 through three says this, By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. This is why it's dangerous to start pointing fingers at people and calling them Antichrist. Because John told us, not only in chapter 2, but in this verse here, that there is a spirit of Antichrist, and there have been many little Antichrists throughout history. Nero, Emperor Nero, was the first one widely considered to be the Antichrist. He was the one that really launched into the persecution of Christians. He threw them into the Colosseum where they were torn apart by lions. He lit them on fire and used them as candles. And he's the Antichrist. What we know now, he was not the Antichrist, but he certainly was an Antichrist wasn't he? That was the spirit of Antichrist. I've already mentioned Hitler. He's an obvious one. Establishing his authority, conquering throughout Europe, kind of developing a cult of personality around himself, persecuting Jews, killing them on a mass scale. He was an Antichrist, but he was not the guy because he never made it to Jerusalem and also he was stopped quickly. There's been lots of guys throughout history that you can point at and say that was very anti-Christ like. And the Bible tells us to look out for people like that. But we're still waiting for the ultimate with a capital A Antichrist. And we've got to be careful of labeling people by that name, especially with all the baggage that comes along with it in our culture. Just cuz you don't like a politician doesn't mean he's possessed by Satan, you understand? <laughs> I'm serious about that. It might even be a tragically funny game to play to go home and look up any, you know, world figure or celebrity and find out is blank, blank, blank the Antichrist? See if you can find a blog proving to you that, yeah, it turns out he is the Antichrist. How do we, how are we going to identify him? There are a few identifying markers, namely number three, he's going to lead a revived empire. So this is, this is something interesting. It's going to be an empire that had fallen before, but has come back. Daniel chapter nine, verse 26 after the 62 weeks, remember these, these weeks of years? These are some dense prophecies, but track with me, okay? After the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. Anointed one is Hebrew, Mashiach, which we say Messiah. So who was the Messiah who was cut off? Jesus. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Then shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. I always get a chill when I hear that desolations are decreed. So, okay, that verse tells us after the death of Jesus, the people of the prince who is to come, that's the Antichrist, because he talks about him immediately in the next verse, that it was the people of the Antichrist who destroyed Jerusalem. So who destroyed Jerusalem? Rome. Under, Under General Titus, Vespasian in 70 A.D., They destroyed Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple. Although, I will say, even that is not quite so simple. If you read Josephus, who you know was a Jewish historian from around this time, maybe some of y'all are hearing this for the first time, but I find it fascinating. Josephus goes out of his way in his history of the destruction of Jerusalem to say that it was not Rome and the Roman generals that commanded the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem. He says it was the conscripts, from Syria and the surrounding nations that used the opportunity to destroy the city of Jerusalem, which I find fascinating. He goes out of his way to say it was not Titus the general. He didn't want this done. It was not the officers. It was all these people that had lived and grown up around Jerusalem, hated the Jews, got an opportunity to get in there and went way beyond what the general ever wanted to do. That's Josephus. So you can see, even things that seem obvious are not quite so obvious. The other clue we find here is in Revelation 17, where it describes the beast with seven heads. And this is also an easier one because they kind of tell us what it means. Revelation 17, verses 9 through 11. This is that vision of the beast and the harlot. You've heard of this one, right? At least you've heard the the song that's called the beast and the harlot anyway. But the, the, the monster with seven heads and there's a woman riding on the back of the beast. But here's what some of these verses say. This calls for a mind with wisdom. I'd agree with that. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is. The other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. And as for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and goes to destruction. Okay, so he says, we see this image of a beast with seven heads. He says, those seven heads are five kings or five kingdoms, seven kings or seven kingdoms. He says, five of them have already been, the sixth is right now, and the seventh is to come. And then he says, now that beast that you saw before, the Antichrist, is an eighth king or kingdom, but he belongs to the seven. So that's that same revived thing. So let's break these down. And most of this is pretty undisputed. So who are these these seven empires? Where were the seven empires that dominated Jerusalem and Israel? Number one, these are the five that were. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. Those are the five that were. And that's more or less undisputed. What's the one that is? Well, what empire was active when John was writing? Rome. Number six is Rome. The seventh is to come. And here's where we get into some interesting debate. What is the seventh empire? Now, the the most common way to interpret this is to say, well, it's Rome when Rome is revived again. But then the question becomes, hold on a second, is Rome revived twice? Because the eighth empire is of the seven. So is Rome six, seven, and eight? I have heard some very persuasive people put out there, the eighth empire that dominated Jerusalem and Israel was the Islamic caliphate that reigned for a very long time. And that's also more or less undisputed. That did happen. And it had not come when John was writing. So now we've got these seven empires, however you want to understand it. It says the eighth is of the seven. Which means when the Antichrist comes, it's going to be one of these back again. And there's disagreement on that. I don't think we can fully answer it. Again, I think it will be very clear on that day. But isn't it fascinating to consider if you go back and look at uh, Nazi Germany? Oh, it's Germany. They have nothing to do with that. They were not just trying to revive Germany. They were trying to revive what used to be called the Holy Roman Empire under Charlemagne, which is when Rome had collapsed and there was just a rump of the empire left in Germany. And you look at the the Nazis marching down the street with those same things and banners they were holding up that were Roman. And it sends chills through you because they were trying to revive Rome. They were trying to come back. And then a few years ago, we just saw ISIS trying to bring the caliphate back. And it, it can send chills down your spine. It's like, goodness gracious, this could happen. Of course it could happen. It's in the Bible. But you see it and are like, oh, that could never happen again. Don't be too sure. Saddam Hussein was obsessed with reviving what empire? Babylon. There's always some crazy maniac wanting to restore the glory of his civilization and dominate the whole world to do it. The Most popular way of understanding this is that it is Rome. There is another idea that is a revived Islamic empire, which I think is interesting, not definitive. That passage from Josephus does get interesting, though, when you read that. I think all this does is it keeps it ambiguous, which is what the Lord kind of likes to do. So other than trying to break down the mark of the beast or the number or try to know for sure what these things are, the point is that when we see a dominating world leader, reviving an old empire and demanding everybody to worship him, that's the Antichrist. And here's the last thing to know. And this is when we can start to bring it back a little bit and be rejoicing some more. His empire is not going to last. He's going to be destroyed. One of the things, and listen, I love Tim LaHaye, and I, I thought the Left Behind books did a lot of great things to get Christians excited about the coming of the Lord. But one thing that I would disagree with and it's not really a big thing. Is I don't think there's going to be much peace during the reign of the Antichrist. That's how the, the books portray it. Is that that oh the United Nations comes in and we've finally made peace across the whole world. The Bible describes this empire smashing the world to pieces, and then there's famine and then there's plagues and the Antichrist is constantly, if you read through Revelation, fighting against the other kings and the other people that hate him. So it's not you know one world kumbaya. It's it's. The, the Soviet Union, it's Nazi Germany, it's Genghis Khan, it's that kind of thing. But the whole world is going to follow him and worship him. Revelation 16 talks about all of his enemies are going to unite together and they're going to have a fight. Do you know where that battle is going to be? Armageddon, which is Har Megiddo, that's a plain called Megiddo in the land of Israel. It says that he's going to destroy Babylon, whatever that is, not touching that today. Is that Babylon? Is that Israel? Is it Rome? Who knows? It's going to be destroyed. He talks about the sacking of Jerusalem and the the rape and the destruction of that city. But then Zechariah and elsewhere describes that Israel is finally going to call on the name of Jesus to come and help them. And then that's when Jesus comes back. How do you think Jesus would have treated Hitler if he saw him in person? Magnify that by about a billion times. Revelation 19 says, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Who's that? Jesus. We're going to go fight Jesus. Good luck, pal. (laughs) And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And all God's people said, good riddance. Jesus is going to come and he's going to clean house. And we're going to talk more about the destruction of the Antichrist in the coming weeks here. But the number four thing is that his kingdom is going to fall and he's going to be cast into hell forever by Jesus. And then Jesus will come and set up his kingdom, which is going to be a reign of righteousness and the healing of the nations and the healing of the earth and the binding of Satan. That's how it all ends. That's horrifying and it's terrible, but we know who's coming. So let's sum up what we've learned today. The Antichrist is, number one, a world ruler who's going to lead a great empire. Number two, he's going to compel worship of himself from the temple. Number three, he's going to lead a revived world empire, which is going to help us identify who he is. And number four, he's going to be destroyed by Jesus Christ. I think you kind of saw there's a whole world of details that we could get into here, especially when you start breaking down the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. But for us, what's the point from this passage? Paul is saying, you know that the end has not come because you don't have this guy yet. Which is interesting because people will say to me, well, the Antichrist was Nero and all that stuff has been fulfilled. But Paul is telling them now, hey, not yet. That's your emperor, but he's not the guy. The guy hasn't come yet. It's also very interesting to realize that in the city of Thessalonica, they worshipped the emperor. They worshipped Rome. And Paul is coming in and telling them such a countercultural thing that someday there's going to be an emperor who's going to rule the whole world and set up a mightier empire than anyone has ever seen. He says, and you've got to be careful because many people are going to be deceived by this guy. It's so countercultural to what they had learned. So you think the Bible is countercultural to you? Paul comes in and says, no, 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 no. We don't have loyalty to emperors like that. That's the spirit of antichrist. That's what we take away from this, to be on guard against apostasy and against false rulers. 1 John 2, 18, children, it is the last hour. You've heard that Antichrist is coming, and so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. does not matter if Jesus comes back tomorrow or in a thousand years. Every generation in the church faces a temptation of apostasy. And every generation of the church faces charismatic world leaders who try to dominate and destroy God's people. And we think no one would ever go after them. Y'all people do that every day. There are people living in Germany at the time that went to church and prayed and sang and believed their Bibles. But there was a deep-seated hatred and resentment of all the people that had put Germany down after World War I. Here comes this man saying, we're going to rebuild this empire. We're going to rule the whole world. We're better than they are. We deserve better than they are. Let's go out and take it. And the whole country went after him. Now, there were godly people that knew. There were men like Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the Confessing Church that saw right through this guy. Like, no way. Are you crazy? None of this has anything to do with Jesus. It might satisfy you politically, but this is is wrong and this is not good. And they were forced out of the church, and everybody hated them, and people gave him hate mail. And we look back on them now, and it's like, thank God one person paid attention. we got to watch out, y'all. We, as our culture starts to put more and more stock in politicians, it's, it's interesting how, you know, I, I'm a big history buff, and I read American history and all the rest of it, how steadily the, the gap has grown. I'm not trying to make any kind of point, but just the way it is. The gap has grown between, you know, the, the average backwoodsman could go and become a congressman, you know, so now like there's separation between the power and the people. And as that increases, the, historically what happens is people start to look up to these people. And they seem larger than life to us. And they begin to speak our language. And I'm not saying that somebody who does that is the Antichrist, but it can be the spirit of Antichrist. And what happens when, that, when these empires rise God's people get destroyed. Uh, it, inevitably, it happens, because Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He's the God of this age, and he is behind so many of these things. And I say, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Hitler, you can, you can dominate Europe all you want. All I want to do is kill Jews. All I want to do is kill Christians. All I want to do is shut down the church, and we'll put a neo-pagan in charge of the church in Germany, and we'll shut down everybody else. And that's happened countless times. We've got to be on guard against those things. A lot of these details, you guys, they were intentionally ambiguous, I think. I think the Lord is is almost keeping some of it shrouded so that Satan is going to walk right into the trap and do exactly what God prophesied, just like he did when Jesus was nailed to the cross. You look back on Isaiah 53, you're like, why would Satan ever crucify Jesus? The Bible says because the Lord was showing him up. And I think you might have a similar thing going on here. Where Satan maybe reads it and goes, i a bunch of mumbo-jumbo, can't understand it anyway. Let's just do our thing. And then when it's over, it's going to be like, he walked right into what God said he was going to do. He told him how it was going to go down, and it went down like a, like a boxer trash-talking before the fight. Here's what I'm going to do. You're going to come at me, and I'm going to go like this, and you're going to be knocked out on the floor. And Satan's like, I'll never fall for that. Well, you did once, and you're going to do it again, Satan. That's why some of these things can't be known definitively. It's okay. What we can know for sure is that you ought to be living a life that is not anti-Christ, but is pro-Christ, in submission to Christ, his commandments, his gospel, living for his kingdom. Don't go after the world and all of its pleasures, and don't chase after people that have worldly power or offer you worldly power. You're a sojourner. You're a citizen. You don't belong here. So don't go after those things. And most of all, remember that Jesus is coming back, and he's going to put every anti-Christ to the sword And we're going to know who's king, huh? He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. And he's the true Christ. And everybody's going to look at the the Antichrist and be so astonished. Look at his power. Who could ever stand against him? He dominates everyone. There will be believers and Jews that think, we can't stop him. We can't stand against him. And then Jesus shows up. And it says that the people will look at him and their hearts are going to melt when they see the real deal. He came as a lamb the first time. He's coming as a roaring lion the second time. Aren't you glad? We'll all be gathered together to him on that day. And we're going to rule and reign with him for a thousand years. Come quickly, Lord Jesus.